0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Does your tight schedule prevent you from sitting down with your Bible? Do you sometimes find the Bible confusing? The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is a daily 15 minute verse by verse Bible study with the church, past and present. It's hosted by Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor, Will Whedon. Learn more at the wordendures.org Or your favorite podcast provider. An evangelical and Catholic podcast, the Word of the Lord endures forever. Matthew Levering joins us today. He holds a chair of theology at Mundelein Seminary and is the past president of the Academy of Catholic Theology, co editor of the journals Nova et Verita and International Journal of Systematic Theology. He has a new book, a lovely volume, in fact, published by Word on Fire Press entitled Newman on Doctrinal Corruption our topic today. Welcome Dr. Levering.
1: Thank you. Wonderful to be here.
0: You know, I have to say these Word on Fire volumes, they're lovely. They're so nicely produced. Very handsome uh, handsome volumes. I I I you've probably seen other other volumes in the put out by Word on Fire. This is Bishop Barron and others. Uh, I guess out in out in Los Angeles, but uh, congratulations on just the the appearance of of the book. It's a lovely volume.
1: Yeah, they're doing great work, and they um, you know the the painting on the on the cover of the book is is original. It's it's a painting they commissioned. Oh,
0: really, I think so. It, yeah, it looks. It 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 looks very good. <laughs> it's very nice. So okay. Uh, uh, first, well, all right. We'll get to your operative terms uh, first. What is the issue of quote doctrinal development? Uh, for those of us like me, you know, theologically uh, 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 a babe. What what is that?
1: Well, the issue has to do with with things like the um, papacy, for one thing. Another would be um, the seven sacraments. So these things, of course, were all always part of um, the reality of our, of our faith, the, real, the reality of the deposit of faith given by Christ and, ha- and handed on by the apostles. But nonetheless, um, these things did develop within history so that they became uh, increasingly apparent. And, and then, I mean, the seven sacraments are an example of that. You know, early the early church um, knew of two uh, sacraments in our contemporary sense: uh, baptism and the Eucharist.
0: And is this always has it always been a controversial issue, a place of debate? The church has had to hold meetings in order to sort of set the course of development. This has always been the case.
1: Well, right. There, there have been there have been controversies. Um, you might you might be thinking of um, councils um, Nicaea where they're arguing about um the Trinity and and so on, arguing about um you know Christ's divinity and he, and his full humanity, but but nonetheless um in those councils it's you don't quite have conscience conscious um doctrinal development at that point because they they what they. Um, understand themselves to be doing is simply asserting the faith that, that has always been, the faith that has always been taught. Where where you get conscious doctrinal development, is um, as a theological problem, is where you start to realize that that you know um, the sacrament of confirmation was not understood in the second century um, as in the same way as it is understood in the twelfth century. You know that's that's when you get kind of the theological problem that newman picks up on and so newman is is um a great master uh, who's identifying um a reality that's always been part of the church but nonetheless a theological problem that had not really been fully addressed uh, um, prior to uh, newman's time now prior to the 19th century other people in the 19th century were were addressing the the thing and of course thomas and, and others knew there'd been development they just you know they didn't um, consciously address the problem in the in the way that Newman um, and later these 19th century
0: thinkers uh, do. Is, is there a reason, Matthew? I don't. I can't recall you going into this in the book. But is there a historical reason why, maybe, suddenly, or maybe not so suddenly, but here in the mid 19th century, doctrinal development becomes sort of a, an issue, a conscious issue. In itself, uh, calling for theological examination. Any, any historical reason why, why that, that, that comes to the forefront?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely does. Because um, what you have is in the 15th century, you have um, the emergence of Renaissance humanism. And Renaissance humanism really begins to develop the, the tools of sort of modern historiography. And so then, what you get in the 16th century, of course, is the Reformation and the um, the strong critique saying these realities, such as the papacy, um, some of the sacraments, and so on, these realities were not part of the deposit of faith. You know, but we can't find them historically. And so then, then from the 16th century onward, you have intense debates among Catholics and Protestants. Um, but then you also have the emergence of the modern historical method, and which is sort of the um, con- it. Fulfills the the promise of the uh, Renaissance humanist um, historical method, and so once as soon as you have the emergence of modern historical methods, um, which are quite rich, um, then you have sort of an added element to the to the debate, and you you in other words, but the debate had been going on already between Catholics and Protestants um, already, but but now now it um, proceeds um, henceforth uh, with this added historical element. Um, this full, uh, as we're German uh, historical method. So, so that's kind of the background. Now, now my book, of course, focuses on the issue of, of corruption, not not on the issue of, of development. Right. Um, but but nonetheless, of course, the two are the two are um, paired. You know, you can't have one without you. you well, you say one. Yeah, you say, one without yeah, the, you say you in
0: one book. Right. You you can't even talk about doctrinal development without assuming the the doc the possibility of doctrinal corruption and 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 Newman of course always has that in mind himself as well yeah mm-hmm that's right yeah well, what did well let's get to Newman and and since you bring up history uh you speak of Newman's engagement with prior figures some famous uh figures some some not so famous today uh outside of of, of the, some, some theological circles but what did historian Edward Gibbon mean to newman why Why does Newman address him? Oh,
1: Gibbon has Gibbons of tremendous importance, including tremendous importance for um contemporary faith to today and the And the reason is is that Gibbon and already in Gibbon you find almost all the historical critiques of Christianity, so everything you could um you could learn today at Yale or wherever. You know, um, you can learn from Gibbon. Um, everything that Richard Dawkins or these these folks, um, the so-called New Atheists, you know, their their basic ideas are all all in Gibbon. And so hmm. the reason is is that his, historically he's quite sophisticated, and he um, raises then he's able to raise these concerns about you know the early church, and he makes these arguments about first-century Christianity. And then the early church as well, the, the um, doctrinal debates within the early church. And his whole point is that the whole thing is invented. You know, that Jesus was a mere man and, um, and everything everything after that is just simply controversy for controversy's sake. Um, it's just simply invention upon invention. Now, now, Newman reads this as a young man. And of course, everybody's reading Gibbon. Um, all intellectuals in, in England are reading Gibbon. And so and Newman reads it as a quite young man and it has a tremendous impact because he's his response to Gibbon um you know in a throughout throughout the rest of his career, but it also awakens him to um in a positive way, it awakens him to church history, you know, to the, the fact, hmm. you know, of, of these figures um and these debates and how, how rich and important they are. So there's a positive aspect too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading those two chapters. I think in in the Decline and Fall on Christianity, uh, with that that underlying irony in, in in Gibbon about about its historical its historical reality. Uh, Byron has the famous line about Gibbon sapping a solemn creed with solemn sneer uh, that has been repeated <laughs> a, a million times. Uh, but what what was was Gibbon's method of really expelling divine action, providence, and revelation from the practice of history a radical move in his time? I mean, mid-18th century were previous historians, even though you, you, you trace the, the, the modern historical methods back to the 17th uh, century, was Gibbon a real break? from previous history in that he he just doesn't let any any divine action enter into it at all
1: well i don't think he's exactly a break i mean it was um you know becoming more and more popular within at church church history um and history of the roman empire had tended to be written by by christians whether protestants or catholics um you know prior to so far as I know, you know, prior to the um, mid 18th century. So essentially you would have these church histories, these massive church histories, and, and also histories of Rome, histories of early, um, you know, of those civilizations um, that would, would have been written by Protestants or Catholics and would have had Protestant Catholic debates beh- um, going on behind the scenes. But yeah. what happens in the 18th century is that you have people like Gibbon, but also um, people like David Hume Others who are who are writing yeah. these um, massive, very, extremely readable hi- histories, so it um, it becomes popular among um, skeptical thinkers, um, right? Essentially, atheists it becomes popular well, to, would, would to you, write
0: these histories. Yeah. yeah w- would you call Gibbon at that point an atheist or skeptic, ironist? Would you go all the way with atheism with Gibbon? I'm not sure myself. Well, I
1: don't know. I I read a few I read a few, you know, um, works on Gibbon um, and as part of doing the chapter. It's complicated. I mean, it is true that Gibbon, he sees himself as as a Christian now. But what he means by a Christian, he, does, he certainly doesn't believe in the divinity of Jesus. Um, he there may be some residual belief in God, but not not an active God. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's more just simply that um, you know he sees himself it's it's a you know the latitudinarians you know the uh, the Anglican latitudinarians there was a, you know he's he's a gentleman you know Gibbon is a gentleman so he sees himself as as part of that establishment you know it, it was and to some degree this was in the air in the um, 18th century um, England because yeah. of all the conflicts of 17th century the bitter the terribly bitter and um, Extremely destructive um, com- conflicts in 18th century England. So this was in the air among among yeah. educated Anglicans at that time.
0: Well, what is Gibbon's attitude toward the paganism of the Roman Empire?
1: Well, G- Gibbon loves a pa- Gibbon loves paganism because he sees that as as tolerance. He sees it essentially as like the Anglican solution, you know, his version of the Anglican solution, um, where everything is tolerated. And there's people don't really take it all seriously except for that you have kind of na- a national unity um, that involves some rituals, uh, you know. Now, Gibbon, of course, almost converted to Roman Catholicism. In fact, he did really convert to Roman Catholicism, but then he was sent by his father, you know. This was this was when he was in his, um, you know, ed- early education, and he was his father learned that he was going to convert to Catholicism, which would have been disastrous economically for him. And so his father grabbed the young boy Gibbon and had him spend a year with a pastor, a Calvinist pastor, and and that Calvinist pastor um, convinced uh, Gibbon that Roman Catholicism was false. And he, he in the end, Gibbon, of course, I, as I see it, uh, essentially lost any, he, he certainly didn't become a, he didn't become reformed. He didn't become Calvinist. I, I just think he just simply lost faith.
0: Yeah. And what would you say is his attitude toward the early Christians, the church fathers?
1: Uh, well, they, he does he think they're fanatics, but he, he has some appreciation for the more successful, politically savvy uh, fanatics. So that's kind of the way that he does it, is, is he sees them all arguing about things that are absolutely fanatical and, and that have nothing to do with, with um, the first century um, Jewish uh, Jesus of Nazareth. But he nonetheless sort of respects, to some degree, um, those who are more wily, more savvy, and, and a bit more tolerant. Um, and, and in that way, Athanasius um, is somebody he, he does respect, um, uh, mm-hmm. Athanasius.
0: Okay. You bring Newman into this issue through a piece he wrote on Henry Hart Millman. Who was Milman and what does Newman argue in this text?
1: Well, so there, there you have kind of Newman developing his own um, that historical uh, viewpoint. and this is sort of the early the early Anglican Newman of course, and he's arguing there it's an intra- Anglican debate over he, he sees Millman essentially is representing here kind of the what you might call the, the liberal Anglican of, of, the, of the day. Or, or more, and more, you know, more evangelical, I, su- I suppose. I, I can't really, um, uh, was Millman evangelical? I, I forget. I forget whether Millman was that. But certainly um, these are intra-Anglican debates about um, how to do church history. And Millman is moving away, um, you know, from Newman's uh, sense that you really have to do church history with, with providence involved. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's the key thing um that in his debate he says as soon as you're going to bracket if you bracket providence if you bracket these things um you know you're not going to get back you're not going to get back to a, a an understanding of early christianity that that has the real depth um that 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 early christianity really did have so so that's kind of thing now of course of course um And behind my my book, behind this whole work on Newman on doctrinal corruption, is my own sense that um, contemporary Catholic, I'm writing from a, a Catholic theological perspective, of course, and my sense is that Catholics who are now engaging doctrinal development and tossing the word development around are not taking seriously enough the whole issue of doctrinal corruption and nor are they taking seriously enough, um, you know, the, the issue of historical method and what historians bring to the table and what they can't bring to the table. What, what is, what is um, the place of dogma, you know? So the, these are issues that are sort of floating behind, but Newman, Newman brings them out. You know, Newman understands these issues and he, he brings them out, um, you know, beautifully.
0: all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Let, let's go ahead and get to the, that, that big weightier issue. You proceed to the, the, the big text, an essay on the development of Christian doctrine, which spends a lot of time on historiography. And, and go ahead and give us the, the summary. Uh, Matthew, what is the role of Christian doctrine in the practice of history?
1: Well, <laughs> well that's a big question there, but when new, I think you got to go back. I think you've got to start really with, um, well, well, we can skip over the whole, the whole issue with Hurl um, Froude, who's essentially talking about the relationship of politics and ecclesiology. You know so newman sort of gets in the that's an important one i, I did want to throw that in there newman with his f- closest friend in the early um 1830s and, and late 1820s um, his hurl fruit and, and hurl fruit basically says look there is this relation between politics and ecclesiology which we that we gotta figure out and that we can't just hand over the church to political power and so there is a, a the church either has an apostolic deposit of faith that is not tamperable with by political power or else, um, and the church has its own integrity or, or else we're in trouble. So Harold Fruit is one that really raises, raises the issue of doctrinal corruption in a new way for Newman that adds an element. It adds like the political element, but, but then the whole historical element already been given by, um, you know, by Gibbon. Now, I did want to mention this one other figure, which is Francis Newman, his brother. And Francis Newman is a fascinating figure because he ended up kind of disagreeing with Newman on everything and essentially becoming um, a Unitarian. They started off in a very similar place and ended um, completely opposite. And so so that's that also is kind of an important factor. And because Francis argues that you can't have, um, that as soon as you have, uh, a dogmatic religion, you're, you're going to end up um, corrupting um, the key principles of the gospel. So Francis um, has sort of this anti-dogmatic uh, shift, and he, he moves, he has a book called Phases of Faith, where he shows as best he can why a dogmatic religion is wicked and causes division and causes strife, and so he rejects all this, and so he has this sort of anti-development of doctrine, as it were. Now, so these are kind of in the background to, to um, Newman's um, understanding of, of doctrinal development as, as it's beginning to emerge there in the, in the um, early 18, 1840s. Now, okay, How so Newman... I, I just wanna throw all these things in the background.
0: Yeah, 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 sure, yeah, well, now, now,
1: now we can talk about, yeah, now we can talk about doctrinal development though. You, yeah, let's pick up your question.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. What, where does doctrine stand in the practice of, of history? I mean, for, you, you, you said providence, you must assume providence in order, in order to do, in order to do church history or all history.
1: Uh, Okay. Yeah. So for Newman, um, definitely there's going to be two things that he thinks lead his brother Francis Newman into the wrong path into the anti-dogmatic development path as it were and the two things are the rejection of what Newman calls the sacramental principle and then the rejection obviously of the dogmatic principle and so the rejection of the sacramental principle I think is the is one we got to start with there because that's the one that has to do with history the sacramental principle um, it's sacramental here doesn't mean um, sacraments in, in the seven sacrament sense, although it includes that. The sacramental principle is as simply that that the created world and everything about the world, including therefore history, uh, bears the marks of the divine creator and who is provident. Now Newman, of course, understood evil uh, very deeply, so he um, he had many he addressed the problem of evil in a number of places, but. His whole point is that um, the created world is a sign, you know, and the, it's a sign of, of God's presence and of God's activity. Now, that doesn't mean that every element um, of you know of human history is going to be such a sign, but Newman sees, you know, God at work um, in creation. So that's a, that's the sacramental principle. It's sort of like the guiding way that you look at reality. And Newman Newman gets that from you know, other Tractarians, um, you know, key friends, like especially John Keeble. John Keeble's a crucial figure for that. And so that, that's the one, that's sort of the central principle, the sacramental principle that guides Newman's understanding of history and sort of stands behind um, Newman's way of thinking in terms of as he gets to the essay on development of Christian doctrine. But, but then there's, there's also the dogmatic principle, of course, and the dogmatic principle is that there is no religion worthy of the name that lacks dogma, you know? So in other words, all, well, all dogma is, is just simply um, truth, you know, truth about God, you know, truth, yeah. if they, you know, truth about God, divine realities. And so if, there, if you have a religion that is free of dogma, Newman says you have, you have something that's not real, not something that really has no real uh, impact. It says there's nothing to it. so so you're going no. to have to um, have a dogmatic religion. that's the dogma, and so that's his what he calls the dogmatic principle.
0: you You touch on the oft discussed crisis of faith of the Victorian period, and certainly I got a lot of that in my Victorian literature classes. In, in college, some of which involve reading some some Newman, but you, you you think that the the crisis of faith issue is a little overdone, that, that that wasn't really a big factor in in Newman's outlook.
1: Well, the crisis of faith in terms of in terms of um, that, I, I do follow my friend Timothy Larson. Uh, who teaches at Wheaton College and has written a number of studies? Timothy Larson is the one who who shows that the Victorian period, in which um, which encompasses most of Newman's life, um, you know, Victorian period, you know, wasn't a period of loss of faith. Actually, there was quite a robust um, increase in, in Christian faith in the nineteenth century. If you compare the if you compare the nineteenth century to the early eighteenth century even to the mid-18th century. Of course, in the 18th century, you're having some religious revivals, but, but it's, it's really by the late 18th century and then, and then well into the 19th century that you have a, quite a bit of religious renewal. Now, now Newman lived so long though that we need, to, we need to take into account that Newman began to see and saw fairly early on that this wasn't going to last. Newman saw um, that that religious liberalism was going to lead back into a religious crisis um, in England and kind of Newman perceived that but you gotta it is true to you you can think about it like this that um, you know for most of Newman's life certainly into the 18 1870s um, 1880 you know um, religious faith was fairly strong in England so you you had a for example, one of Newman's opponents, Gladstone, you know, the great prime minister was a very devout Anglican. And that was quite common, you know, so it re- there was quite a bit of um, religious presence in, in 19th century England, but, but Newman saw it fading, Newman saw the crisis, and certainly by 1880, you know, toward the end of Newman's life, you're you're really beginning to, to see a, a crisis emerging, but so, I, I do accept Timothy Larson's basic point, though.
0: Yeah. Let me get to a specific issue as we as we wrap up here, Matthew. You refer at the beginning of chapter four in your book to concerns raised over the elevation of Mary. Uh, starting in the West, uh, way back in the 12th century, the elevation of her into, the, and, and your term is, divine omnipotence. Uh, What was that elevation? How does it figure in in your, or Newman's, discussion?
1: Well, so I think the concerns, I mean, they'd be raised by Newman's Tractarian friend, Edward uh, Pussy. So Newman, uh, chapter four is that I bring Newman and Pussy into dialogue over the whole issue of, of essentially of Mary, you know, because Pusey is responding to the, the Marian dogma, you know, of 1854. And so Pusey writes a set of books, you know, which are quite long and quite interesting. And Newman Newman writes one response. He, he, he just writes one response. He doesn't respond to every book that Pusey puts out on this topic. But so Pusey is essentially challenging Newman and saying, look, you converted, you became a Catholic, and now look what the Catholics have done. <laughs> you see? So that's the basic. The basic thing is that you became a Catholic, on the basis of development of dogma. But what ended up what you ended up doing was proving the Tractarians right. And the Tractarian argument was always this: the Tractarian argument was, the Church, up to say the fifth or sixth century, you know, the Patristic period, wherever you want to end that, the Patristic Church, is, you know, along with Scripture contains the elements of truth and there isn't development after the patristic Church. That's the Tractarian argument. there is no development after the patristic Church. So whatever is in the fathers explicitly, that's all there is. And so Newman then is challenged on this and and he um, he responds to Pussy though by, by arguing that that the, that even though there may be some Marian exaggerations, among certain um, saints in their um, devotional writings. Um, and of course Saint Louis de Montfort, you know, that type of thing may have some exaggerations in Newman's view. Um, and, and of course Pussy of course lists all these exaggerations. If you want a list of the exaggerations are all in Edward Pussy, but I, I do put them in my book. But Newman responds mm-hmm. and he says look, look here, the the, the dogma of Mary's Immaculate Conception is about the new eve and newman says this element the new eve is perfectly patristic so newman Newman's offers an argument just saying look there there has not been doctrinal corruption here there has been proper doctrinal development and understanding and enrichment of our um, understanding of our faith anyway that's, that's his argument i find it persuasive
0: yeah there's much more in the book, discussions of Erastianism and, and the sola scriptura uh, arguments, uh, discussions of why Newman thought the Reformation, Reformation principles were unable to stop the, the progress of, of liberalism. But for now, the title of the book is Newman on Doctrinal Corruption. Dr. Levering, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much.